Well, good morning. It's good to be with you here this morning. <clears throat> Pastor Matt is out of town, and um, you've seen several of us filling in um, the last few months uh, while he's been gone. appreciate your um, loving patience and um, compassion towards us as we, we try to fill that, that burden for him. If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn, turn with me to Luke chapter 8. And we're going to pick up with where Matt left off last week. As we continue to, to work our way through this wonderful book, it's, um, it's been a tremendous blessing to study this piece by piece and story by story. And because of the commitment of this church, and the leadership of this church to expositional preaching, the, the amount of truth that flows from this text and from this book every week is just enormous. And we are, we are thankful that we have the, the opportunity to be able to, to study it this morning. Luke chapter 8, verse 40, we're going to finish this chapter through verse 56 this morning. Now when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue. And falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house. For he had an only daughter, about twelve years of age, and she was dying. As Jesus went, the people pressed around him, and there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And though she had spent all of her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, Who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him and declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. While he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, Your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, Do not fear. Only believe, and she will be well. And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the father and the mother of the child. And all were weeping and mourning for her, but he said, Do not weep, for she is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But taking her by the hand, he called, saying, Child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up at once. And he directed that something should be given her to eat. And her parents were amazed. But he charged them to tell no one 
what had happened. The word of the Lord. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we are so thankful, as always, as we come in here every week and have the privilege to study your word uh, without fear of persecution. And we have the ability to, to come and be with one another and spend time with one another when we know all around the world that same luxury um, is not always given. And we, we thank you for that. We, we, we don't want to take it for granted that we have this wonderful privilege to study the very Word of God and to hold this Word of God in our hands. I pray that you would fill us with your Spirit this morning. I pray that you would teach us what is in your text. Help us to understand what Luke is saying. Help us to understand how you want us to, to be able to use this as it pertains to our lives. Pray that you would guard the this church and this flock from any false teaching or anything that I would say that would be an error or anything that would be a distraction to your glory. We pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. Well, 1968, some of you uh, may remember uh, if you were there, I wasn't there, but I've studied it. And 1968 was a very interesting year politically, wasn't it? There was great turmoil and great disruption among the American people because of the Vietnam War and the controversy that, that, that came with that, as well as the credibility gap. Uh, between what was being communicated from the Johnson administration to the people of this country. Um, there were riots over civil rights. Um, there were people being mistreated because of the color of their skin. And the place, if, if you were someone from the outside looking in on it, you would say that this place is in total confusion. The, the youth and the, 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 the people that grew up that were in their late teens and their 20s, many were rebelling at the universities, setting fire to buildings. And the, the, the place was just in an uproar. And during that time, the, that, that same year was also a presidential campaign. And there were two or three people that seemed to kind of have um, a really good chance. It was very a very tight race at gaining um, both the Republican and the Democratic nomination. Uh, President Nixon, on the Republican side, for the most part, had it wrapped up. I don't think, I don't remember him having a, a, a massive contest with anyone else on that side of the ticket. But on the other side, on the Democratic side, there was a, a major battle between Senator Eugene McCarthy and Bobby Kennedy, uh, as well as Hubert Humphrey. President Johnson, uh, seeing the, the writing on the wall, dropped out of the race. Uh, I believe it was in March of that year. And shortly after, his vice president, Hubert Humphrey, took over and, and wanted to run, obviously, in his place. But there was a, a major battle happening between Bobby Kennedy and... Uh, Eugene McCarthy. And as it got further down the road, 
they went and competed and campaigned against one another in the state of California, which is a massive state, was a massive state, had a lot of electoral votes then on the Democratic side, and has a lot of, has a lot of electoral votes now, obviously. Um, but as it got closer and closer um, towards the end of that day, I believe it was June 4th or June 5th, it became clear that Bobby Kennedy was going to most likely win that race by several percentage points over Eugene McCarthy. And what that meant was that he would most likely go on, there was a good chance that he would go on to be the Democratic nomination, although he had to uh, wrestle some votes away from uh, Hubert Humphrey. But most likely he would be going up against Richard Nixon. And it was quoted as saying, um, from the, the the Nixon campaign or Nixon party that they were utterly concerned when they saw that he had won that primary in California on the night, I believe, of, of June 5th. I've got a couple of pictures I think she was going to put up for me. But the reason I bring the reason I bring that up, the reason I tell this story is because I have over the years, I have not met very many people that are famous. I just I haven't. I haven't come across a lot of famous people. Um, but this man, love him or, or hate him, like him or not like him, he had a, uh, a tendency to have people just completely flock and, and swamp around him. Every time he would go and campaign, um, I think even, um, the Nixon campaign at one point said, you know, he's a rock star that everybody loves him and that the children love him. And as they would drive down the street, they would they would uh, try to shake his hand and they would rip his cufflings off his shirt and pull his watch off. I think he lost his shoes at one point. And as they were driving down the road um, in a convertible, one of his bodyguards had to hold on to his legs because they were literally going to rip him out of the car. That's how famous he was. That's how much people loved him. And so when you see, and we have video clips of this, you can pull it up on YouTube. And when you see this, when I, when I see this, and I see the reaction that people had towards this man, I think back as we, as we look at this encounter, this story of the crowd at, that just mobbed Jesus. They just swarmed over him when he comes back across the Sea of Galilee to the west side uh, in Capernaum. And they ju just mobbed him to the point where he could probably barely breathe, just Thousands and thousands of people swarming around him like he was a, a rock star. And they wanted something from him. They saw that he did miracles. They saw that he was able to heal people from their sicknesses and their diseases. And they wanted something from him. They, uh, they also saw earlier on in the story that he could feed people who were hungry. And people who were starving, who didn't have anything. He was able to feed them from nothing. And they were absolutely, at this point, in, in love with Jesus, of, of who he was and what they could get from him. One of the things that Luke does uh, that I want to, to re, kind of redraw our attention and our focus is, is on this idea in chapter 1. We can't lose focus of this. And I, I know that, that Matt, I think, has read it multiple times over the last several weeks. Luke chapter 1, verse 3. It seemed good to me also. This is Luke speaking to Theophilus. It seemed good to me also 
having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you've been taught. That is the thesis and the, and the focal point of this entire book, that you would have certainty concerning the things that you've been taught about who Jesus is. And that is that He is God. He is the Son of God. And He is all-powerful. The very previous chapter before chapter 8 and in chapter 7, we're given two and three stories back-to-back -back showing and demonstrating the absolute control and authority of the Son of God over every single aspect of life in this world. We see him feeding the 5,000, turning the bread, the loaves of bread, uh, a few loaves into thousands of pieces, feeding the, the, feeding the large mob of people. We see him healing people, healing people that were deformed, even in, in his own synagogue. We see him towards the end of chapter 7, and what, what was spoken about last week, where he's coming face to face with, the, with really the very face of evil in this demoniac in the Gerasenes as he crossed over the lake and he, he faced down evil and stared it right in the eye and conquered it. And he cast out those, those demons, that legion of demons. They, we know they, they fled from, from that scene into the, the herd of swine who then ran off the cliff into the water. And one of the things that, that Luke is doing here at this juncture is he's wanting us to, to really draw attention and pay attention to the fact that what the crowds of people are doing. So look, at the, look with me at these first few verses, starting with verse 40 of chapter 8. And I want to just look, and, look with me and see what, what are a few things here, as you see this with, with your eyes, that, that Luke is trying to communicate to us. In verse 40 says, Now when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. Isn't that interesting? This was not a hostile crowd, was it? It says, Luke says, they welcomed him. They waited for him anxiously. They waited for him to come back across the Sea of Galilee in order to be able to be around him and hopefully gain something from him. So he returns with his disciples across the sea and he's immediately swarmed with thousands of people wanting to see him, wanting to touch him, wanting to hear him speak. And there came a man verse 41, named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue. And falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house, for he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. Now this is remarkable. This is really a remarkable event that's happening here. If, if we remember correctly, we remember that the Jewish establishment and the, the, the Jewish authority within Israel during this time was at major odds with Jesus. 
the scribes and the Pharisees were the ones, generally speaking, that were, um, in one sense, the authority within the local synagogues. They were the theological authority. And of course, we have the, the Sadducees. They didn't, weren't so much uh, participating in the theological debates, but what they were doing is they were participating within the political realm and dealing with Rome. But within, within the synagogues, were the scribes and the Pharisees. And we know that over and over again, Jesus has encounters with them. They're typically not positive. They're typically a, a negative experience that Jesus is running, running into them. And they're trying to trick him. They're trying to cause him to, to stumble in his words. They're trying to you know, make him say something that he doesn't want to say. And so it is not, even at this point, a good relationship, which makes this example and this story all the more interesting. Because the, a ruler of the synagogue at this point in time would have been someone responsible for maintaining and, and governing the worship and the study of the, the Torah uh, within that, that, that group and that realm of people. And it's my understanding that uh, participation in worship at the synagogue was, was mandatory. It was not something that you just decided whether or not, a, you know, to wake up and go or not. It was, it was mandatory. It was a big deal. And the, the ruler of the synagogue most likely was over, in terms of his authority, over several elders who helped also manage and teach, most likely, within that, that synagogue. So this person, the picture that Luke is painting here, is of a person who is very, very well received within the Jewish people. He's probably well off financially. He is probably most likely um, steeped within the Jewish tradition and theology of the time, which was the theology of the Pharisees and the scribes. And not only that, but he's probably already encountered Jesus earlier on within the book of Luke uh, when Jesus appears within the synagogue we don't know for sure that it was Capernaum, but there was a pretty good possibility that the, the, um, the man with the withered hand that was healed most, li most likely was in this same synagogue. And so Jairus knew who Jesus was very clearly. And it's obvious, the picture that Luke paints for us is that he knows very clearly who this is. And yet, it, despite the fact that he probably didn't like him, he probably didn't respect him. He probably didn't love him. He had a major problem. And he was, he was in the midst of absolute desperation. The desperation that he was in involved his daughter, it says, was, that was 12 years old. And she was very sick. And as he left the house that day, as he left her, he knew that she was getting closer and closer and closer to death. She's very sick. He knew that there was a good chance that she may not make it through the day. So I want you to use your, your mind's eyes and just picture for a moment this frantic father, well-respected, well-liked uh, within the community, in absolute panic. His little girl, his little girl is sick. Many daughters and women of that age 
um, usually around that age and maybe just a little bit older. We're at that point in time getting very close to, to marriage. So this is a, a young girl on the verge of womanhood. And it says it's his only daughter. And he's frantic and in absolute sheer desperation. See, how do you know that? How do you know he was? The reason I know that is because not only the account that Luke gives us here, but the account that Mark gives and Matthew gives, that this man would humble himself enough to the point of busting through this massive crowd of people, thousands and thousands of people just busting through in order to see Jesus. But not only that, when he gets to him, he falls down at his feet, at the feet of Jesus. Now, that's not something that someone of his ilk um, or his position would do. In fact, that was probably, in some, re in some sense, embarrassing for his colleagues and people that know him to see him. What are you doing? Why would you, why would you throw yourself down at the feet of Jesus? What is wrong with you? And yet, he does so. We know he does, and we know he, the reason he does is because he's in big trouble. He needs help. He needs help. He needs someone to, to save his daughter from the sickness that, that she has caught herself up in. And no one can, there's no one that can do it at this point. No one else can he turn to that can save his daughter from this situation. And at the very, this very point in time, something very interesting, strange happens, doesn't it? In verse 42, Jesus, list, listening to what Jairus is telling him about his daughter, she's sick, please, he begs him, please, please, please come to my home because I believe that you can heal her. And that very moment, as the people were pressing around him, there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And though she had spent all of her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately, immediately, she was healed. Her discharge of blood ceased. And immediately as that happened, Jesus knew right away something's happened. Something has changed. And he says, who is it? Who was it that touched me? And of course, everyone around him, swarming around him, is denying, I didn't, I didn't do it. So what do, you, what do you mean? Who touched you? you got, you're, you're in the midst, in the middle of a crowd of 10,000, 15,000 people, and you're asking who touched you? What are you talking about? Even Peter chimes in you know, always sticking his foot in his mouth, it seems like, saying, Master, the, the crowds are surrounding you and, and pressing in on you. What, what do you mean? Who, who touched you? And Jesus said, Someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling. And she's falling down. She does the same thing as Jairus. She falls down before him and she declares in the presence of all 
uh, that she was the one and, and why she had touched him, that she had been battling this awful, awful sickness for 12 years. And she had undergone many physicians. And it's interesting, Luke, we know, was um, a medical doctor. Luke is interested in his presentation. He's interested in preserving, in some sense, the dignity of the medical field that he resides within. And so he uses a little bit kinder, uh, kinder language in describing her, saying that, um, that she had gone through many physicians and had, had spent all of her money based on the Gospel of Mark, and that, but no one was able to heal her. Mark tells us a little bit, he's a little bit more crass in how he describes the doctors, and he says that she underwent uh, multiple treatments, that she suffered the, um, the likes of many physicians. And one after one after one, no one is able to help this woman. She is in the same mode of desperation. Probably exhausted from carrying this disease for 12 years. No one could heal her. Listen to what one of the treatments was back then for this type of illness. And we don't know exactly what it was. But just to give you an idea of what she had to undergo in order to try to get well, spending all of her money with these doctors. Here's one of the treatments for her uh, disease. Take of the gum of Alexandria, the weight of a small silver coin of alum, the same, of, of crocus, the same, and let them be bruised together and then given in wine to the woman that has an issue of blood. If this does not benefit, uh, benefit it, take of Persian onions and three, uh, three pints worth and boil them in wine, and then give them uh, to her to drink, and say, Arise from thy flux. If this does not cure her, set her in a place where two ways meet, and let her hold a cup of wine in her right hand, and let someone come behind her and frighten her, and say, Arise from thy flux. <laughs> I mean, that, just to give you an idea, obviously, the medical... Uh, knowledge and understanding of how the body worked was not very far along, was it, at this point in time? There was one story I read where it, the, the prescription for healing this type of a disease was to take a, um, a bag, a small bag made of linen in the summertime and cotton in the wintertime, and to put a donkey dung in it and wrap it around your neck and wear it for so many days. So just give you an understanding of the nonsense that she had to endure. And yet, nothing, nothing, was, nothing was bringing any healing. Nothing was bringing her any relief. And she was probably at the very end of herself, if you can imagine. And yet, on the other side of this, we have Luke is giving us really a, a picture of two people who are in a state of probably panic and absolute desperation, and yet they are, they're two people from, from two different walks of life, aren't they? You've got one in, the, in Jairus who is wealthy, probably well-to-do at least, who is well-thought-of, well-liked in the community. 
who is a leader within the community. And then you have on the other side of the coin here, a, a woman who was sick with this uh, discharge of blood, who probably doesn't have any money because she spent all of it with doctors trying to get healed without any relief and was an outcast within society. You say, well, why do you know, how do you know that? How do you know she's an outcast? Because Old Testament law clearly taught that a, a woman in this condition, this situation, who had the, this flow of blood was not to come in contact with anyone else. And if she did, if she did, the person or people that she came in contact with would be unclean. How do you like that? <laughs> How would you like that? She is probably ostracized from her community. She probably can't spend time with anyone um, or come in the presence of anyone. She probably can't go to the synagogue herself and, and teach and, and learn at the feet of the, the teachers and the rabbis within the synagogue. She is all alone and has no one to help her. No one has the ability to take away her disease. She spent all of her money, and she is in a state of desperation, isn't she? So you have these two people. Luke is presenting these two people in the same condition, and they need Jesus. They are convinced. Jairus is convinced he probably sprinted to where Jesus was from his home when he heard that he had come back across the lake, convinced that if Jesus would just come and pray over her or touch her, that he would heal her. And the woman, absolutely convinced, that, which is even more miraculous, she deceptively, given her condition, understanding her condition, understanding why she did it, deceptively thought, if I could just touch the very hem or grab onto the very hem of his garment. Jairus being the chief official or an elder in the synagogue, um, as well as many of the Jews, uh, based on obedience to the Old Testament law, would wear these uh, blue tassels that would hang from their, um, their garments. Um, and God had taught them in the Old Covenant that, that this, this uh, ribbon or this uh, cord, excuse me, that would hang down would be a reminder to them to be obedient to his law. And we know very well the other gospel writers tell us that the Pharisees, they loved these cords hanging from their robes. In fact, they would make these cords even bigger, and they would make them longer, wouldn't they? So that when they would go to in, throughout the city and the marketplaces, they could see, oh wait, that's look at, his, look at the, the cords hanging from him. He must be someone special within Judaism. Uh, good morning, teacher. Salutations, teacher. Good to see you. How are you and your family, teacher? And they wanted to be respected, and they wanted to be loved, and they would widen, widen their, these tassels. And so most likely she's reaching out, grabbing on to this, to this cord. And in that very moment, something interesting happens. When she grabs onto the cord, something happens, and that is this. The effects of sin, the effects of of disease, the effects of the curse that fell upon all of us in the garden were immediately reversed. Isn't that interesting? 
Jesus comes through and he is one by one reversing the effects of the curse of sin on the people in this area. And he reverses it. He changes it immediately and she's healed. And he's breaking through the sicknesses and breaking through the diseases and, and he's changing the outcome of the lives of these people who are, who are impacted by the sin that Adam and Eve let into this world in the garden. And he does it with absolute authority. He does it with full power and authority, and it, it immediately, immediately goes into effect. Look with me at verse 49. While he was still speaking, so Jairus is standing there watching, watching the woman coming and interrupting his moment there. He had been waiting patiently. He had interrupted Jesus in the midst, in the middle of his ministry with boldness and audacity. And now this woman who he's never probably seen before comes in and she is now delaying Jesus even more. Can you just, just stop for a minute. Imagine yourself in, in, in his shoes, in Jairus' shoes. I have very little time, precious time, to get this man back to my home in time so that my little girl doesn't die. And what you are, you're stopping and slowing down this entire process. What are you doing? You insignificant woman. Why are you causing Jesus to delay? Don't you understand? I need him back at my home. And you're slowing down the process. You can imagine the thoughts racing through his mind, thinking about his daughter. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, Do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter in with him except for Peter and John and James. We've heard this before, haven't we? His inner circle. He allowed to go in the home with him as well as the father and the mother of the child. And as they, they entered the house, they enter the house, it's just a scene, isn't it? It's a scene of people, professional mourners there, weeping and crying over the state and condition of this little 12-year-old girl. And they were weeping and mourning. And Jesus said, don't, don't weep, for she is, she's not dead. She's just sleeping. And the response to that was they laughed at him. They laughed at Jesus. Isn't that interesting? He had no respect. He had no love with these people that were in the home, except for the parents. But taking her by the hand, he called saying, Child, arise. The author, um, the Gospel of Mark, actually, interestingly enough, repeats this phrase in Aramaic. And he says, Talitha kumi, I don't know if that's the way you say it or not, which means, little girl, I say, arise. Little girl, arise. And her spirit returned. It was immediate. Just as the flow of blood, that the, the problem that the woman had, when she touched Jesus and her healing was immediate, this little girl's spirit returned to her immediately. She got up at once, and he directed that something 
should be given her to eat. And I want you to look with me at, at 56. Luke, several times now within this verse, he's wanting us to see something. He's wanting us to see the people, the reaction of the people. Her, parent, her parents, he says, were amazed. They were amazed by this. But he charged them to tell no one what had happened. We see this in each chapter of this wonderful gospel. Jesus is exercising absolute, complete authority over everything. Sickness, disease, demons, religious theologians and religious leaders trying to, to cause him problems. He's triumphing over all of them and showing himself to be the Son of God with absolute authority. And Luke is wanting to remind us that of that this morning. Just as he was wanting to remind Theophilus 2,000 years ago, I'm writing this to you so that to remind you of who this person was, that you would have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. I ask you this morning, where is your certainty? So this is a really, really good story, but um, we don't really know if it really happened or not, do we? I mean, who, who's to say? We leave this building, we'll shake people's hands and smile, and we'll go about our business and continue in a, a life of unbelief that this truly is God and that this God wants and desires to have a relationship with His people. This text shows us clearly that God is not only powerful, He not only has authority over all things, but that He is a compassionate and merciful and loving God, isn't He? He didn't have to stop and help these people. He did. And we have example after example after example. Time and time again, he does this. Why? Because he cares about people. Just like he cares about you this morning. When you think about this Jesus, you go about your business this week, who do you see him to be? Who is this Jesus to you? How do you understand him? What significance does he have in your life? Because Luke is wanting us to remember that we have the right, this morning, we have the right to have complete, 100% certainty that not only did this man exist 2,000 years ago, but that he is still alive and that he is in fact the very Son of God. That's the certainty that He wants to leave us with this morning. And I hope that you will remember these things when life becomes difficult, when life puts you in a situation where you feel as though you are in the midst of absolute sheer desperation and panic 
I'm in big trouble, God, big trouble, and I need help, and I need it now. Not tomorrow, not next week, I need it now. We must, we must remember, we must remember that this God is a God of compassion, and He hears us. He asks us to, to bring our request to Him, and He loves us. And he has the power to fix not only the problems and um, issues that you have in your life, but he has the power and the ability to fix all of the things in all of your family and all of your friends' lives. But the one thing that we see with these two people that approached Jesus is that when they approached him, they approached him in faith, didn't they? They believed and when they did, miracles happened. Where are you this morning? Where are you in your understanding of Jesus? Do you love Him? Do you see Him as God? Do you see Him as the Creator, Sustainer, Facilitator of the entire universe? Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, this this text is is just absolute an absolute blessing to us. Um, I thank you that you have given us the opportunity this morning to be able to study over it and to read through it. Help us this morning to understand the significance of who you are. Help us to understand the the absolute power and authority that you have over us and over everything. And at the same time, help us to remember that you are compassionate and merciful and loving and patient with us. As we leave this place this morning and we go out into a dark, a dark and evil world that by and large has rejected you, help us to, help us to see within our own heart and feel within our own heart and mind the power, the power and the reality of you, Lord, who you are in our lives and the things that, that you can do and that there is no burden, that there is no problem, there's no sickness beyond what you're able to heal. We thank you, Lord, for loving us. Thank you for uh, this congregation of people I thank you for their love that they've shown towards one another and the love that they've shown towards our family over the years. I pray that you would bless them this week, that you would place a hedge of protection around them, that you would draw near to them, Lord, as we're wanting to draw near to you, and that you would just be with them and their families, and that you'd give them eyes to see and ears to hear and understand and to know that you are great, you are powerful, and you are magnificent, and you are worthy to be praised. We love you, Lord. We thank you for loving us first and saving us from our sins. I pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen.